you've got to do is call on the name of Jesus. I have a friend named Antoine that told me a story about a particular moment in his life. He was in his early 30s, just trying to provide for his family, burning the candle at both ends. And he had a massive stroke. He was rushed to the hospital. They looked uh, at the condition of his brain and uh, a spot that was bleeding. And the doctor came in and told him this. He said, if we operate, you're probably going to die. And if we don't operate, you're probably going to die. And so they decided just to watch him and treat him the best they could, but not to do surgery. And Antoine's life was literally hanging in the balance. He was laying on his hospital bed and he was in a room by himself. And he told me, he said, I remembered the words of my mother. She told me when I was little, all you've got to do is call on the name of Jesus. So laying there in his hospital bed, he called out to Christ and he was saved. His life was transformed and by God's grace, he got better. He recovered and now Antoine is a bivocational pastor faithfully serving the Lord. But he remembered those simple, clear words from his mother. All you've got to do is call on the name of Jesus. Well, today we're going to study a story where a man comes to that same realization and he cries out to Jesus as his life hangs in the balance. And there's much for us to learn from this story. So turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23. We're going to begin reading in verse 39. We are continuing our sermon series Seven sayings from the cross. Between now and Easter, we're going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus that were recorded by the authors of the gospel leading up to Easter Sunday. We've come to the second saying from the cross found in this passage. So look there with me, Luke 23, verse 39. And if you are physically able today, I want to ask you to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. The Bible says one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, 
For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He calls on the name of Jesus. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Truth with no mixture of error. We're so grateful, Lord, that you chose in your grace to breathe out your word through human instruments. So they were writing down the very words of God. Now we have, Lord, our Bibles before us. And as we study our Bibles, as we study the Scriptures, we know that in that you are speaking to us. And I pray that you would use your word in a mighty and marvelous way in our lives. Holy Spirit of God, would you move in our midst. We need you in this moment to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truths of Scripture and we might have the wherewithal, Lord, to to respond to what we see. Would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you move in our midst in such a way that we leave today knowing we have met with the living God? And would you just grant us the grace to lift up the the matchless name of Jesus in these moments? And we'll thank you and praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We have seen that Jesus, at the orders of Pontius Pilate, motivated by the religious leaders and the crowd, was led to a place to be crucified. He was led to a place called the skull. The the Greek word for skull is kranios, where we get the word cranium from. The Aramaic rendering of that same word is Golgotha. Whenever you see Golgotha, you're reading the Aramaic word for skull. The Latin version of that same word is the word Calvary. So when we speak of Calvary, we're speaking of that that rocky outcropping, that hill where Jesus Christ was nailed to a cruel Roman cross. And the Bible gives us some interesting details about his crucifixion there in verse 32. It says, two others who were criminals, other gospels calls them robbers or thieves, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals. Watch this, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus, the Son of God, is nailed to a cross. He's hanging there on that cross with a criminal on his right being crucified and a criminal on his left being crucified. Now what I want to do is I want to walk through the passage we read earlier and look at the interaction between one of these criminals and Jesus and make some application to all of us in this room. I want to walk through this story under four different headings. First of all, I want you to see that this story illustrates the different responses to Jesus. The story illustrates the different responses to Jesus. Did you notice in our text we read 
There were two different responses to Christ. First of all, one of the thieves, one continually blasphemed Jesus. Look what it says there in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Now that word railed in the original language is the word blasphemo. Literally, one of the criminals hanging by Jesus blasphemed him and mocked him. Look what he said. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so in a very mocking way, he is blaspheming Jesus Christ. He's hanging there by the creator of the universe. And instead of reverence and fear and awe, he is jeering at King Jesus. One of these men blasphemed Christ. And and you see that response even in our culture today. People that really have no use for Jesus. They, They want to keep him at arm's length. They turn their back to him. They ignore him. They disregard him. They even malign him. And they live in a way that is blasphemous toward the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's one of the responses we see here at Calvary and one of the responses we see from people in our culture today. But the other response I want you to see is this. The other criminal embraced Jesus as king. There in verse 42, Jesus, he calls on the name of Jesus. All you got to do is call on the name of Jesus. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So by virtue of the fact that he's asking Jesus to bring him into his kingdom, he believes that Jesus was indeed a king. And what we see in this text is we see this thief, this criminal, coming to his senses. I love the story of the prodigal son found over in Luke chapter 15. The the youngest son uh, of a man comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. And he takes his inheritance, he goes into a far country, he lives a wild life, and he wastes all of his money, even to the point where he has a job feeding hogs, and he's so hungry that he begins to eat the hog slop. He had sunk pretty low, right? And in the Bible, Luke 15, we see an interesting statement about this prodigal son. The Bible says that at that moment, at his lowest, he came to his senses. You want to know how to pray for people that are lost? Pray that they would come to their senses. Here, on the cross, this this thief comes to his senses. And I want you to, to notice the progression of thought that he goes through. First of all, He understands that death is imminent. Look what it says there in verse 40. We see the one criminal blaspheming Christ, and then the other criminal says, uh, rebuking him, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, we are being condemned for our crimes. We are hanging on a cross. We are about to die. Death is imminent. And this... This thief on the cross that calls on the name of Jesus understands that he is about to meet his maker. He says, don't you fear God? You're about to die. 
he understood that death was just around the corner. And can I say this to everyone gathered, gathered in this room? Did you know that death is imminent for all of us? I don't know when you're going to die. I don't know when I'm going to die. But I know this. We're one day closer to our death than we were yesterday. Right? If the Lord tarries, death is coming for us all. And if you don't understand that, then you'll never see your need to be ready for your death. So he understood that death is imminent. The second thing we see in this thought process is this. I am accountable to God. He says there, do you not fear God? You're about to die. I'm about to die. And you have no sense of your accountability to God. So he's understanding here that I'm going to die. I'm going to meet my maker. I'm accountable to God. You can sense the angst in his voice as he speaks these words to the other thief. I am accountable to God. He will be my judge. Don't you fear God? And then third, he comes to the conclusion that Jesus is holy. Look what the Bible says there in verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. In other words, we're dying because we deserve it. We're paying the punishment for our criminal activity. But this man has done nothing wrong. He understands the sinlessness of Jesus. He understands that this man had done nothing wrong. He was Holy. He understood he was hanging on a cross by another man that hung on a cross, and that man hanging beside him was innocent. He was without sin. And that's the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ went to the cross not to pay for his own sin, he went to the cross to pay for our sin. And the only way he could pay for our sin is if he was perfect himself. And Jesus Christ is perfect. He did nothing wrong. Before, we got up and, before I got up and preached, we sang a powerful song called Forever. And I want you to understand that we changed a lyric in that song. If you hear it on K-Love or somewhere, the, the lyric's going to be different. That first verse says, The Savior of the world, if the K-Love version, the radio version, says, The Savior of the world was fallen. And Joey was preparing to lead us in worship that song. He called me, this has been months ago, he called me. And he said, wait, what do you think about that lyric, fallen? I said, I don't like it. Jesus was not fallen. We're fallen. Jesus was perfect. But he put himself in our place and gave himself to be broken on our behalf. So we changed it to broken. He said, you can't do that. We just did. (laughs) The Savior of the world was not fallen. He was perfect. We're fallen. The Savior of the world was broken for our sins. That's why we changed it. So just think about that next time you hear it. The Savior of the world was perfect. He was dying for our sins, not his own. And this thief on the cross understands he is holy. But then he understands in the light of the holiness of Christ that he is a sinner. I am a sinner. Look what it says there in verse 41. We indeed justly are are receiving the sentence of condemnation. We are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We have blown it. This man beside me is perfect. I am not. I am a 
sinner. He understood in the light of the perfection of Christ his fallenness. And can I just encourage you with this? If you think you've got it all together, stop comparing yourself to other people. You'll always be able to find someone worse than you are. Right? And if you compare yourself to other people, you'll think, well, I got it all together. I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm better than that person over there. But see, the comparison is not between us and other fallen humans. The comparison is between us and a holy God. And that's why we need a Savior, because the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned, listen, and fallen short of the glory of God. If you think you don't need a Savior, stop comparing yourself to other folks. Compare yourself to Jesus. He's perfect. You fall short. You've sinned against a holy God. Guess what? You and I are in desperate need of a Savior. And this man understands, I am a sinner. I love this quote from R. Kent Hughes. He writes, Such a clear awareness of sin is a profound advantage over most of humanity. Most people live in a foggy world of ambiguity and relativism, falling in love with the, the dark contours of their lives. In other words, Hughes is saying, it's a good thing to understand you're a sinner. Because if you understand you're a sinner, you will run to the Savior. And most of humanity doesn't get it. They think they're okay. But we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And this, this thief on the cross comes to that realization, I am a sinner. But then he understands Jesus is king. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Only a king has a kingdom. So think of the faith in this moment. Even though he sees Jesus bruised and battered and bloody, hanging on a cross, dying on that cross, he understands by faith that Jesus was a king. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And then he comes to this conclusion. My only hope is to call out to him. Death is imminent. I'm accountable to God. Jesus is holy. I'm a sinner. My only hope is to call out to him. Jesus, remember me, he says. All you've got to do is call on the name of Jesus. That's what he does in this moment. He comes to his senses and he calls out to Christ. So we see in the story the two responses to Christ. One thief blaspheming Jesus, the other thief coming to his senses and calling on Jesus to save him. Very stark picture of different ways people respond to Jesus. Years ago, I was asked to preach a funeral for a church member's extended family member. This certain member of their family I did not know. But they asked me to come and, and perform the, the funeral services, officiate those services, and so... The family member told me that there were going to be a lot of people, friends and extended family, that were, that were lost, without Christ, without hope. And at that funeral service, uh, I, I shared some words of, of comfort for the family, tried to comfort them in their grief. And, and I tried to honor the person's life the best I could, even though I did not know them. I tried to just remember th their life and, the, and their legacy. And then... 
I began to just walk through the gospel. And by the way, I do that with every funeral service. Because the gospel is the only hope we have. And if you don't share the good news when people are facing the death of a loved one and thinking about their own mortality, what are you doing, right? It's our only hope. And so, I'll never forget it, I began to, I was in a funeral home in Memphis, and I began to walk through the gospel message, and people began to get up and just walk out the door. More than I've ever seen before. Offended that I would speak of Jesus Christ. But there were some there who were with me. They were nodding their heads. And with tears in their eyes and a smile on their face, they understood the hope that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Now, I'll never forget the, the, the stark difference between those Christ followers and those ones walking out of the door rejecting Jesus Christ yet again. Two different responses to Jesus, illustrated here in this story. But there, there's a second truth that I want you to see that's illustrated in this text. Not only do we see the different responses to Jesus, we see that this story illustrates salvation by faith alone. Salvation by faith alone. Look what it says there in verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Some people think that you are saved by doing good stuff. Or some people think you're saved by faith in Jesus and good stuff. But in some way, shape, or form, you've got to do some good stuff for God to save you, for God to give you salvation. That's how some people believe. But notice that this thief who called on the name of Jesus is hanging on a cross. There is nothing he can do to earn his salvation. And yet Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. You're saved. Here's the gift of eternal life. And yet this man in his crucified state could do nothing to earn it. He was hanging on a cross about to die. Some people think, well, if you go to church and you're a regular church attender, then God will accept you and God will grant you salvation. This man couldn't go to church. He was hanging on a cross. Or if I'm a part of a particular denomination, or if I'm a member of a church, then, hey, if my name's on the church roll, then surely God will save me. This man couldn't join the church. He was hanging on a cross, about to die. Some people believe that, okay, yeah, you need Jesus, but if you're really going to be saved, fully saved, you also need to be baptized to, to complete your salvation. This man couldn't be baptized. He was hanging on a cross. Some people say, well, you got to do good works. you got to you know, help the poor and, and contribute to society. This man couldn't help the poor. He was nailed to a cross. He couldn't contribute to his community. He was dying. And yet, based upon his faith that is signified by his calling on the name of Jesus... Jesus gives him the free gift of eternal life. 
So this story illustrates salvation is by faith alone. Listen to me. We are not saved when we achieve. We are saved when we believe. We we are not saved by trying. We are saved by trusting. It's a big difference. And and you may be here today and say, Wade, I'm I'm trying to earn my salvation. I'm trying to just make sure my good kind of outweighs my bad. And, And if my good outweighs my... If I do enough good stuff, surely God will accept me. And surely God will say, hey, come to heaven when you die. But listen to me. You and I are sinners. And our sin separates us from a holy God. And the only way we'll go to heaven, the only way we'll be reconciled to a holy God, is if our sins are washed away. And good works don't wash away your sins. You can do all the good stuff you can, can muster, but it doesn't, it doesn't affect your sin condition. Only the blood of Jesus washes away your sins. So you've got to trust in Him and His finished work as your only hope. And when you trust in Him, call on His name, He forgives you of your sins and you are saved, not because you're good, but because He's good. Not by your works, but by your faith. And this thief on the cross illustrates that. He was saved hanging on a cross, unable to do anything. And yet his faith leads him to call on the name of Jesus. I like what Daryl Bach writes The cross is at at its heart the offer of God's gracious forgiveness to those who embrace it. To embrace the cross means to renounce our own works as the basis of our salvation. Our relationship with God comes through trusting in Jesus and His finished work. In other words, you're not good enough to save yourself. You need a Savior. You need to place your trust in what Jesus did for you by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. He is your only hope. Just like he was the thief on the cross's only hope. Let me illustrate. Let's, let's just say that, that uh, I'm in the Atlantic Ocean treading water because my boat capsized and floated away. And I'm, I'm treading water and I'm getting more and more tired and I'm about to go under. But you show up on a boat... And you see that I'm floundering in the water. And so you grab a ring buoy that's attached to a rope. And and you throw it out there and it lands right beside me. And you say, hey, Wade, if you'll just grab a hold of the buoy, I'll pull you into safety. You don't have to to tread water anymore. You'll be rescued. Wouldn't you be bewildered if I said this? Hey, thanks for showing up. Thanks for the the buoy. But I'm going to build a boat. I'm going to save myself. And you say, well, Wade, you don't have any materials. You don't have any tools. I see shark fins out there. Not looking so good for you, right? I mean, you would be absolutely perplexed if I did not grab the buoy and, and, and was allowed, to, allowed you to pull me into safety. You would, you'd be perplexed if I said, no, I'm going to build a boat. How ludicrous would that be? That's how ludicrous it is when instead of accepting God's offer of free salvation through Christ, you try to earn it. And you try to rescue yourself when God offers you salvation through His Son by faith. So we see here, this story illustrates salvation by faith alone, but there's a third heading I want you to see. 
this story illustrates grace. Look in verse 43. He, Jesus said to him, the thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Two, two aspects of grace I see here. First of all, amazing grace. God offers salvation. He grants salvation to a thief. Dying for his crimes. But it gets worse than that. In Matthew's account of the same story in chapter 27, 44, Matthew writes, at the beginning of the crucifixion scene, the robbers, plural, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So at one point, as this thief, was hanging beside Jesus, he was blaspheming Jesus just like his partner was. But then he came to his senses and called on the name of Jesus and he was given the free gift of eternal life. But notice this, Jesus extends salvation to a blasphemer. Earlier on the cross, he had been reviling Jesus Christ, heaping scorn upon Christ, and yet... By His grace, Jesus saves him. In other words, this man hanging on the cross did not deserve salvation, nor do I. And guess what? For good measure, you don't either. If we are saved, we are saved by the amazing grace of God. We don't deserve it. We just receive it as a gift, right? But not only is this this grace amazing, it's available grace. This is the last day of this man's life. He's about to die. He's about to step into eternity. He's about to, to stand before his maker. And yet, on the last day of his life, he calls on the name of Jesus and he's saved. As long as there is breath in your lungs and a beating heart in your body, It's not too late for you to call on the name of Jesus. His grace is available until the very end. All you got to do is call on His name. Call on the name of Christ. It's never too late. Listen, as the old song says, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. There are many stories of people that have been radically transformed by God's amazing grace. One of my favorites is about the man that wrote the song Amazing Grace. John Newton, a 18th century slave trader, was a wicked, wicked man who lived a life of unimaginable debauchery. And yet he came to his senses. And he saw his need for a Savior. And he called on the name of Jesus. And he was gloriously saved. And his life was transformed to the point where he left the the, the slave industry behind. The wickedness of the slave industry. And he became a pastor that could never talk enough about amazing grace. And this story that we've been reading together of the thief on the cross being saved... Reminds us of amazing grace. But there's one final thing I want you to see. 
This story illustrates different responses to Jesus. This story illustrates salvation by faith alone. This story illustrates grace. But last, this story illustrates glorious hope. This man, all of a sudden, hanging on a cross, dying, suffering, this man, this thief, all of a sudden had hope. Because Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Can I tell you this? If you've called on the name of Jesus Christ, if you know Him as your personal Lord and Savior, you have a hope too, don't you? So wait, why do Christ's followers have hope? Well, at least three reasons. First of all, there's hope because of His promise. Notice what He says here. Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, notice He starts the... the, the Sentence with the word truly. It's the word amen in the Greek, amen. And he begins his sentence with this word. Now, we use the word amen at the end of something that we think is good. We hear something that's, that's true and accurate and powerful. We say amen, or we should say amen. Amen? Y- y'all need to work on that. Just, just being real, need to work on it. We say amen when we've heard something that's a true statement. But here... Jesus says amen at the beginning because he wants to get their attention when he says this word. He he wants to signify, he's about to say something of great import. And he says, truly, you'll be with me in paradise. We see all throughout his ministry, Jesus used this word truly. For example, in John 3, 3, he said to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Over in... John 6, 47, Jesus said, Amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In Matthew 26, verse 21, he's, he's at the Last Supper with his disciples before he would be betrayed and arrested and crucified. And he says to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. In other words... It's going to happen. Someone will betray me. Spoken of, of course, of Judas. Mark 14.30 records Jesus saying to Peter, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. In other words, truly, it's going to happen. So when he says to the thief on the cross, Truly, you will be with me in paradise. He's indicating it's going to happen. This is a promise of Christ. Truly, you will be with me in paradise. And notice he says, you will be with me, not you might be with me. You will be with me. There's no, you don't see the word if in here. Truly, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. So there's hope because of the promise of Jesus. But there's also hope because of our eternal destination. Notice what he says. Truly you'll be with me in paradise. Which is basically another word for heaven. The word paradise is used in the New Testament to speak of the dwelling place of those who are saved after their death. 2 Corinthians 12.4, Revelation 2.7 use the word paradise to speak of heaven. Where we go after we die. And the word paradise is an old Persian word that speaks of a beautiful garden or a beautiful enclosure. 
And the word paradise is used of heaven because heaven is a beautiful place. And he's saying to the thief on the cross, Today, when you die, you will be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in heaven. But third, there's hope because of his presence. Did you notice what he said? Look what he says there in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Which, by the way, that's what makes paradise paradise. That's where Jesus is. And if you are saved, if you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've called on the name of Jesus, when you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You get to go to heaven and be with your Savior, the lover of your soul, Jesus Christ. So we have hope. No matter how hard this life is, Christ has promised us eternal life. He's promised us a place called paradise. He's promised us that we are with Him in paradise. And that gives us hope. Now I've read a lot of books and and stories about different wars. I'm I'm a history buff and I like reading about different parts of history. And I've read a lot about prisoners of war. And, and I read enough stories to know that, that when you have people that are prisoners of war and they've been in that situation for a long period of time, some maintain hope that they'll be rescued, that they'll get back home one day, and there's a vigor, they're, 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 you know, they're, they're putting forth effort to, to do what they can. But there's some in that situation that, that lose their hope. And, and they reach a place of great despair in their situation. You see, hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? It's a powerful thing. And here's what I want you to, to understand. Because of the promises of Christ, because of heaven... After our death, because of the promised presence of Christ, we can hang on to hope. Listen, no matter how bad this life gets, no matter how hard, we have hope. And hope will transform your life if you'll hold on to it. So you say, how would you summarize this sermon? There's so much here, there's so much I didn't even mention that's in this passage. But, but how do you summarize this sermon? Well, let me give you a statement from, from Charles Spurgeon based on this passage, and he says it better than I could, Spurgeon says, the story of the salvation of the dying thief is a standing instance of the power of Christ to save and of his abundant willingness to receive all that come to him in whatever plight they may be. What do we learn from the thief on the cross? In that story of his salvation, we learn that Jesus is mighty to save. And we learn that All you've got to do, as my friend Antoine learned, all you've got to do is call on the name of Jesus. There's an old hymn written by William Cooper. It simply says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And Cooper goes on to write, 
the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. I want you to know that today, if you'll place your faith in Christ, he will wash all your sins away.